0: and welcome to a living my my name is Noel Hogelman. this is our third anniversary already Uh, time flies just want to thank everyone for their support in making this show what it is i've been having so much fun doing it i hope you guys have been enjoying all the shows we've had and if this is your first time listening check out all the past shows we've had we've had some amazing guests on Uh, the show is only as good as this guest i mean no one's listening to me it's all the guests And this week is no different. We have the amazing Xander Berkeley on. We all know Xander from The Walking Dead, playing Gregory, playing CTU's George Mason on 24, Terminator 2, Air Force 1, I mean, there's so many other roles. He's had an amazing career, we talk about that. We talk about his death reel, so to speak, because he's died quite a bit on screen. And just what he's been doing during quarantine, I mean, it's been affecting everybody, and Xander's no different. Very nice guy, very thoughtful guy. He's also a painter. Uh, you can check out his work. I'll give it at the end of the, the podcast. Hope you enjoy my conversation with Xander.
1: Teen-year-old daughters, and uh, it's, it's, they're doing good, but it's not easy. You know, it's hard for them. That 13, especially, is such an, a social right age, and uh, to be taken away from all school activities and all your friends is just so brutal, and, and I think we uh, cannot help but be the recipients of a certain degree of runoff frustrations, I'm trying to be parent and trying to help with the homeschooling is, is, uh, is not always met with great affection and appreciation.
0: <laughs> no, yeah, I know. I, I have a 15-year-old, a 10-year-old, and a nine-month-old. So, and it's, wow. yeah, so it's it's like Thunderdome in our house right now, Um, and my wife <laughs> my, my wife is a kindergarten teacher, so she's trying to do some, you know, teaching as well, and my wife doesn't want to be a teacher to my 10-year-old, she wants to be mom, but it's really hard. Yeah, 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 you know,
1: yeah. well, that's, you know, sort of what, what we wanted, uh, you know, and, and you sort of, you try and create leniency in certain areas right. to make up for where they're being. But then you feel like you're you're erring on that side because mm-hmm. you're letting them stay up to play. Of you're course. letting them be on their, on their own devices. Oh, A yeah. Too much, shall we say. Yeah, I know I too well. <laughs> have to but, you know, I, uh, I'm looking out on, on beautiful Bay.
2: That's good.
1: And they're starting to put the docks in, and, and, uh, you know, we, we have friends who have boats. We don't have one, but, uh, we have a farm in the, in the yeah. countryside about an hour away from here, but, uh, which we're developing for film production. Oh, great. Which, uh, which could, you know, is, is uh, taking, a, has taken a lot of money and time and, and energy away from projects that I would otherwise be doing. Right. Um, but I'm so excited about, about it and the future, you know. There's I just read an article today on the, the sh- change in Hollywood. I mean, everything is just everything is being impacted everywhere. Yeah, but Hollywood has been undergoing changes for a while anyway. That this totally exacerbates and accelerates, and um, it'll it'll be a huge, apparently a big diaspora. There'll be a, a leaving of the urban centers to a, a great extent, and. And it could time out well with uh, very serendipitous for those of us who've been developing properties for film production right. outside the city yeah. where there are day-wide open spaces. And, and uh, so I'm excited about the, what the future holds in that respect. And bringing my friends has been a part of my plan, our plan, right. leaving Hollywood was from the start to lure our friends to the uh, beautiful state of Maine for creative endeavors. Right, so it's cool. No, no, that's good. In I mean,
0: because I'm sure you had this plan in motion anyway, so this just accelerated. Yeah, right?
1: <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, trying to convert an 1820s dairy barn into a stand stage has <laughs> been one of the things that I'm doing out at the farm. In addition to, we were toying with the idea of making the environment, in addition to our country estate. Uh, <laughs> Also, uh, a, a destination farm wedding kind of venue. Yeah. But uh, we've started. Uh, we became friends with a couple people that are involved with a really great film production company, and uh, the financier uh, of it is here in in Portland, uh, just across the bay, and um, really terrific guy, and, and the, the people that were. Running the company out of uh, out of New York are looking for a, a venue here in Maine, and so mm-hmm. we're teaming up. It looks like um, so I'm going to accelerate my my move to, to uh, make that barn a really functioning uh, sound station. because it's big, and, and we've started mm-hmm. moving in that direction already. While and he wants me to forget about the whole farm wedding thing is that's not your business you know that's just another steep learning curve you're a filmmaker you right know? Yeah. this is what you need to be doing i i could not agree more and i'm happy to have the the support uh, and enthusiasm coming from their quarter to uh to provide uh and so now what we've been doing the way of fixing the place up and, and making it really fantastic out there is going to be great for if they want to put up stars and directors mm-hmm. and so forth in a, in a beautiful environment. And, uh, the guy that's been my contractor that we kind of inherited with the farm only got it about five, six years ago, uh, just such a fantastic worker and
2: great mm-hmm. friend
1: now. And, uh, he and his kids, uh, are starting an auxiliary business, making tiny houses up here. Okay. And, uh, so he at his property, he has a big orchard uh, farm right around the corner from ours, just up the road mm-hmm. And uh and so we'd be able to provide accommodations for a whole crew, and yet tiny houses, again, this was something he was under, they, they were all set, set up to start this business, and it's so perfect for people that want to be isolated a little bit yeah. in nature, and uh, away from one another except their own family or themselves and um and so it's going to i think it's going to be a great uh sort of because one of the things that we started to do with the farm was this idea of getting people to think not only think outside the box but to work off the grid a little bit in order to get back to you know these these agents have a way of dominating you know, the way things are done, right. and their motivation is money. That's what they—that's what drives them. No. They, they they play at the creative stuff. No. They they talk a good talk because right. they have to lure us all in. Yeah. But at the end of the day, they're, they're business people, and and we can kind of do a lot on our own. Just dealing with there's so much a. Need hunger for content now. That right. the smart people together and the creative people together mm-hmm. uh, to 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 make the best possible storytelling to share with the public. And and I think we're onto a whole new paradigm because I think we've been a little bit dictated to by powers that that right. want to be the middlemen.
0: Of course. Now, do you think? And, uh, you, you think by like being quarantined for this long the content creators are coming up with the best ideas now?
1: Yeah, I think, um, I think there's, you know, we're at the beginning of a new, of a new uh, period in, uh, in Hollywood history scattered, though it may be across Mm -hmm. the country and around Mm -hmm. the world um, where we start to really ask ourselves, what are the important stories? What are the, what do we, what do we really want to say? And what's the most, Powerful, effective, and maybe new way of saying it, and uh, and teaming up with like-minded individuals because you know, these Zoom meetings are just doing wonders for putting people right. directly in touch with one another in a way that you know that we took maybe took our access for granted as long as we were mobile, right. but uh, isolated we think well now who do I really need to be in touch with who yeah. do I want to be in touch with and what do I want to say
0: yeah what's really important. Right. When, I guess, the industry does eventually open up, how will the, like, the filming and you know, production side of whether the TV show or movie be changed? Like, there're going to be a lot of, you know, like, guidelines and that. How is that going to be, you know, for, for the better?
1: Or will it? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, you know, I, I know... It, it, it's it, it, theres a, it looks as though the movie theaters are going out of business they yeah. can't afford to pay these million dollar you know rental agreements and not right. have anybody coming in and it'll be a long time before you know people are feeling comfortable about sitting in large groups yeah. and so from what I understand there was a, an act put in place a long time ago uh, paramount Something or other that uh, prevented studios from having uh, movie theaters because it would um, prevent smaller filmmakers, independent films, mm-hmm. essentially, from uh, being able to have a, a venue. Right. And uh, but now that that looks like they're they're going to change that ruling. And let me just uh, let these people that I have at three o'clock with know that I haven't disappeared. Sorry. No problem. Computer workflow. Let me just say. So where are you? I'm in Connecticut. You're in 203. I should have known. Yeah. Where in Connecticut?
0: Uh, Trumbull. So it's uh, Fairfield County. Not too far from Bridgeport, yeah. yeah. I, I I commute to well now. Thankfully, I'm working from home, but uh, every day I used to commute to New York City, and you can imagine how how much fun that was, uh, up, up to a point because it was it was pretty bad over there.
1: Yeah, so maybe now you're um, you're one of the people that apart from maybe the uh, additional burden of, of parenting yeah. and home cooling. Uh, right. Otherwise this is working out maybe well for you. Are you still able to do your work? Yeah.
0: It's it's because I, I work in, in TV. So like no, production side, so I'm working for Yahoo. So we do like um, market, you know, market coverage, you know, from the opening bell to the closing bell. And we're able to do our shows remotely. So I'm able to log into my computer in the studio in New York City, and you know, we do all our work. And I've always had, you know, over an hour commute whether wherever i work. So this is fantastic. I get out of my bed, walk to my desk, pajamas, whatever, <laughs> you know, barefoot. It's it, it's fantastic. And my wife is still teaching. So we're, we're two of the fortunate ones where we still have our jobs, So we haven't been for a while. And so it's – She's it's doing
1: um, online yeah, teaching
0: Yeah, it's, it's, she... it's not too bad for her. She meets with her class – she teaches kindergarten, so she meets meets with her class like in the morning each day for like 20 minutes. She'll send work, and that's really it. She might have another meeting with her class twice a week, otherwise. But she's not like on like Zoom or on remote teaching the whole day. So it's it's good and bad because it's not really teaching. She'll say it herself, you know, giving work, we move the kids, but they're not really learning, which is unfortunate because when you know the schools do open, they're going to be so far behind. And they're not going to really be able to catch up, you know. Like my son's going to his junior year of high school next year, and I know for a fact they're not going to be, you know, reviewing what they did this year. They're going to go full speed ahead, and it's the most important year in high school. So it's it's going to be really difficult.
1: um how is the uh connection um i'm getting an indication that the it's uh, unstable Are you uh, getting mine, yeah mine's
0: fine see you you great yeah so it's, mm-hmm. yeah
1: mm-hmm. good yeah <laughs> so uh, ask me what you want i didn't mean to just sort of take over oh no yeah no, that's fine
0: it's, just, it's, it's a conversation so keep all that stuff in which if you don't mind it's it's, it's all very interesting Yeah, how did did, uh, you and Sarah end up in Maine
1: um we got a farm about six years ago Uh, our 13 year old was then 7 and uh, out of the blue Sarah was doing a pilot in uh, Atlanta and uh, I was just about to start a show in Shreveport and um we just, uh, everything is, you know, it's not the old Hollywood thing was already, like I say, shifting. Right. And, and so the kid waking up one morning, uh, when I was, it was in September and I had just gotten through the first couple of weeks of school, you know, yeah. I'm really good cooking and okay. I'm a, I'm, I'm a bit of a chef and right. I, I, I love cooking dinner every night and I, I love reading the stories to put them down at night and uh, waking up early uh, to make breakfast while making lunch in order to get them to two different private schools in Mm -hmm. LA uh, while making you know play date arrangements with right. the various moms it was not necessarily my bag yeah. uh, or my fort. Right. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I was looking forward to sleeping in on the weekend and, and the kid wakes me up out of the blue, to, even though I had a little breadcrumb trail leading to the, the screen and yeah. which we hypocritically media deprived them at the time. Um, and uh, she demurred it and came in and woke me up and said, daddy, when are we going to get the farm? the barn of the right. property so we can have animals and grow things yeah. and she even added on if we have to sell Beechwood, the place where we lived at the time in la to get a bigger farm then that's what we had to do <laughs> and it was like whoa yeah, that's big talk yeah. that's a big idea not a bad idea but Daddy will definitely need a little coffee in order to discuss that in, in any detail and then that day as is sometimes the case when people are as strong-willed as this kid is. Um, they make things happen in right. their psyche. Yeah. Uh, and a friend of mine grow- growing up in New Jersey sends me an email out of the blue. Say, Xander, what are your thoughts on becoming a gentleman farmer? This piece of property just popped up. I've never seen anything like it. Wow. And it was this spectacular the Wadsworth dairy farm mm-hmm. on 126 acres with right. 3,000 through the Saco River and hmm. Uh, farmhouse, carriage house, barn at the time what they were asking, it would have required selling our house in, in Los Angeles in mm-hmm. order to get it but uh, we stocked it we took the train to Maine we spent some time there in the area mm-hmm. and uh, on a lake nearby and, and uh, fell for the joint and uh, there was a big iron potbelly stove on the second floor from the 1800s with Berkeley written in iron on it mm-hmm. and it was like well got a name on this place there were a lot of serendipities I ended up getting a film that shot in Maine that fall and uh, the kid that was supposed to play my son I suddenly thought well I should run this by the director she does look like me with the same eyes it
2: would
1: be kind of interesting does it have to be a boy yeah it would so I just tell my daughter about this and she goes I want a boy's haircut tomorrow (laughs) And uh, so say, well, she'd have to audition. Would that be okay? I'd say, yeah, I want her to. I mean, she's never acted. I want to make sure she can do it.
2: Yeah.
1: And she beat out 150 boys for the part. The next thing you know, we're up in Maine wow. at this cabin on a lake. You know, right after having spent the summer there. Yeah. Thinking, and 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 I call up the real estate person. He'd go, oh, what, what, have you sold it? No. Good. Don't. Yeah. What are they asking for? Well, okay, we'll take it. They did come down considerably from right. its original uh asking price and it was just too you know at the time we we're like okay you could uh you could get a garage in the ghetto for the same amount as you can get this <laughs> yeah, farm right. estate in maine yeah. like, we're gonna go for it and um and we did and then we just fell in love we we, we stayed there every summer and you know, for a few summers and then just said why are we going back to LA? We, right we wanted the seasons we did a show up i did a show in toronto that uh, sarah ended up participating on also getting another show uh, uh up there so we stayed for a few years and after the show i did finish i went over to do a show over in montreal we were up there for a little while and we could handle the cold the kids liked it we uh, we liked it and you know the change of seasons you, you read about it in these storybooks you know yeah and in L.A., you just feel like such a phony, like, right. well, it's, it's this time when snow falls and, and there's, it really does exist right. and, and then the leaves turn yeah. and fall. and then there's spring and never mind. <laughs>
2: but,
1: so, yeah, we were, we were wanting that and, uh, and Toronto reminded us that it existed and that they could withstand it. They weren't too soft. Yeah. And, uh nature helps provide a little adversity where these days it's hard for parents too. So yeah. it's all good. Builds yeah. character.
0: Uh, absolutely. <laughs> has, has living there full-time kind of like, have you lost out on any jobs? You and Sarah?
1: Yeah, I, I'm sure, uh, you know, so much of it is a, sort of being seen and, right, right. and uh, being in offices and stuff But people are out of offices now. So uh-huh. part of it was that I just, I I took myself off the market. I wasn't going to do another series where I was away from my family. I just, I waited a long time to have kids, obviously, and and, I didn't want to miss it. Right. And, uh, you know, I didn't necessarily want to be here all the time. I still like to do a little jobbing out. (laughs) But I just, I didn't want to do a series where they, they own you and they have you at their beck and call and they don't want to release you because they might need you for second unit or for, and and you're just sitting there going, I should be home with my family and not. And I I, I wanted to create my own content and with friends and, and I wanted to, I I was already thinking there's so many, uh, you know, advents in, in the film industry with, you know, becoming more affordable, but there's really no excuse not to be doing your own thing at a certain point.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I've been wanting to direct for a long time and I've uh, got a lot of ideas about how I want to approach that mm-hmm. based on all the different people I've worked with over right. the years and all the things that I've seen that worked and things that I've never seen done that I've wanted to try. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was time to put my, my feet to the Floor on to the gas pedal. Uh, yeah. I forget what the metaphor is, but uh, on, in the fire, yeah. um, <laughs> to to uh, stop just taking every job that came along and to to start to uh, set up, direct and produce and, and and really what I've always wanted to do is create an environment in which people could be, be uh, could collaborate. Uh, I, I've always loved a lot of the directors I've worked with and Alex Cox I did four films with and Mike Figgis. I did four films with and early on and and they set a tone for me I really got to see how effectively it works when you have talented smart actors that can improvise uh, working with talented smart writers that can uh, navigate and uh, orchestrate uh, a storyline so that you can take advantage of these different voices you know it's 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 great you can delineate a great writer can create different voices but there's something about when an actor owns a role and has embodied it the way in which they can improvise in the vernacular of that character and the, the subtle differentiations of that have always appealed to me <clears throat> was there and i'm sorry no you go
0: okay i was gonna say was there one particular role where because besides obviously reading the words from the page you are that, that character and your physical acting of it. You know, you, you've done that throughout your whole career. You know, you embody that character, you know, through your you know physical your know, emotions and stuff like that. Was there one character that you felt you brought that out more so than any other one?
1: Well, I, I want to give credit to Alex. Uh, he wasn't always an easy guy to work with, but he was so... Uh, he, he was... He was really on it when we did *Sit and Dance*. Right. Um, well, that one really shaped and changed uh, the direction of my career because I just did spent a year in Europe to get away from the bad V that I'd been sucked into. <clears throat> and it, you know, in the early '80s, it was—I <laughs> remember working with a. You know, there was a, a lot of car crashes at the time. Right, <clears throat> and I was playing a, a German terrorist, and my my girlfriend was uh, uh, a. In the thing was a. Middle Eastern you know, Iranian terrorist, mm-hmm. and and uh, we were teaming up to take out a mayor in San Pedro, California. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had somebody from the IRA right. and someone, a homegrown terrorist, Bill Paxton's first role, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and uh, it was a good script with questionable sort of logic that we would all be doing gathering from around the world for that particular right. undertaking but uh there, there was some cool stuff about it and uh but the director was the race car driver because there were so many crashes right. that were choreographed into the script and he also had a yacht a lot of people i'm sure they were mm-hmm. doing a lot of blow on his yacht <laughs> right. when they were yatta, yatta, yatta. Yeah. and they were using the tv show as an excuse and And, you know, I was a very serious young actor. I was in the theater. I had classical training. I had an experimental theater background. And I had great aspirations in the theater before being swept out to L.A. And suddenly having a director say, It says here you don't understand. So could you tilt your head and squint when it gets to that point? And I was like, no, well, actually, I was just, I was thinking I would just lean in. I'm I'm a smart German terrorist. (laughs) I think just... Just that doesn't that convince? Well, if, could you just turn your head and squint? And I go, but that—that's what dogs do when when they don't understand. Isn't that a dog thing more than a?
2: Yeah.
1: a and I sort of knew that I was was going to be uh, frustrated if I kept doing bad TV, right. and so I uh, I cut out, went to Europe, lived there for a year. Um, from the TV winnings that I had, I took a small amount of money that I thought would have me back in a few months but instead it, it lasted me for a year because i kept getting just everything was in favor of my staying and taking in impressions in, in the seeing the quality of life in europe you know it wasn't about acquiring right more there was some you could have a little garret you know that i was a squatter i was house sitting for people that i met along the way that just generously offered me a place to stay and and you know, just going to the theater and reading, and and, uh, and doing a lot of artwork and, and writing, and, and uh, it was just journaling my experiences. I was mm-hmm. basically trying to take impressions in for a little while instead of just putting them out, mm-hmm. as I had done since I was very young. Mm-hmm. And it realigned my priorities, and um, in much the same way that this shift is the second biggest shift in my life, um, because when I came back, instead of having, I'd, I'd gotten rid of my sort of fancy apartment that right. I got because I've gotten a little roll. Yeah. Got mommy dearest a bunch of TV offers came in and I right. was like yeah. hey. and and did a couple of other movies. You know, I wanna try at that time it was very distinctly two worlds. T V was not then what it is right. now. And film was coming on. It was the mm-hmm. the beginning of a kind of a heyday in independent filmmaking. And so I said look no more TV for the most part, unless it's a cynical earner, and somebody's just going to throw my way, and it could be kind of fun, and I'm in town. Okay. Yeah. But otherwise, I wanted to... I, I found out I really wanted to travel, so I was going to take films that were on exotic foreign locations. Because right. my mother always wanted me to be a diplomat, so I could do a little hook-up at the embassy, and yeah. meet some people, and learn about that that whole world. Uh, and, and then I could... Uh, work with the best directors that were around and, and whether it was an independent film or whether it was in... There was, there was a, a heyday for big box office movies. Some of the movies I got to work on, like like Apollo 13 and A Few Good Men right. and and Amistad with Spielberg and Air Force One. These were great big movies, you know, Terminator 2. There yeah. they, they, they were great... Big ass films being made at the same time yeah. as they were incredibly interesting and dynamic right. art films, independent films, and and uh, but I did find more and more that the the most creative. Okay, to answer your question, sorry, um, didn't Nancy Roger Deakins? It was one of his first films. It was Gary's first film. It was a thing that mm-hmm. uh, Brian Eno used to he used he invented this term called genius which is in contrast to the term genius right. which is about one individual and it was about the kind of magic that happens when a collective of people come together and i really experienced it on that as i had done in the theater and as i have done since in other groups uh, but it's always a rare and somewhat just magical blessing whenever it happens and and uh Gary and Chloe Webb, Gary Oldman and Chloe Webb playing Mm -hmm. Sid and Nancy, had brought so much weight and depth to their roles Mm -hmm. that it started to, it gained more weight than the original script could support. Mm -hmm. And so things had to change. And it was, it was being shot in pretty much chronological sequence, which is always a a wonderful and and, advantageous phenomenon when it, when it can occur. Yeah. Uh, because you can change things as it goes, keeping an, a, a, a clear idea of what needs to happen in order for the gears to turn, for the storytelling to go beginning, middle, end, to a resolution of some right. degree of satisfaction. Um, and, but if you can hold on to the insights that you've gleaned from the characters you've given birth to, and the storyline can support a degree of change mm-hmm. um, in terms of um, especially interpersonal dynamics. Like, for example, I was their drug dealer. I had read mm-hmm. William Burroughs' book, Junkie. Mm-hmm. I had gone down and done some research in New York and hanging out on the street. Right. I didn't take it. wasn't methadone, active. Right. <laughs> it was, it, it, it was a method and respect. I really wanted to do some research and get... Mm-hmm get down the behavior of how these people that are strung out move and talk and, and interact. Um, And I I wanted to talk to a lot of people that were hipsters on the scene and stuff like that. And, and, but uh, just reading Burroughs book junkie, you know, he spelled it out that no matter who you are, no matter what degree Mm -hmm. of celebrity you have, you do not have control over your drug dealer. Your drug dealer has control over you. And, I read the line in that and Alex, uh, and it was not written that way. It was like they were, they were, he was like a puppet that they ordered around. And yeah. I, I just read that little excerpt and, and, uh, Gary went, fucking man, that's it. That's exactly what I've been saying. And, um, and Alex was, yeah, oh, fair enough. All right. Well, so suppose we throw away what we have written on the page and suppose you just improvised extemporaneous like what you think you ought to be and, you know, we just jumped in doing that and uh, sorry I'm getting a lot of interactions from the teachers here the problem with my home school <laughs> yeah. is going up a whole new level um and uh, we did and Alex was so sharp and and deacons was you know i'm so glad he finally won an academy award because he's so freaking brilliant yeah. and he just his little with nuanced things like well, it was quite interesting just watching zander enter the room and i'm looking at it from the floor and uh, he's standing there sitting on crashed out a bed and chair and suppose uh Suppose we cut his head off and we just see him as this disembodied presence coming through into their world like an invader of some kind of alien. And uh, I just, to me, that was so cool. (laughs) Uh, Alex went for it immediately. I was like, okay, great. So we were helping to set up the shot. And so we were improvising that he's improvising. And Alex is adapting. So when we come in the next morning, it's on the shrinky pages, not only all of our dialogue, mm-hmm. but some of this uh, this innovating that we did uh, creatively by collaborating the night before. And that just and that was what I loved and had missed so much in the theater right. was that kind of this is where the magic happens: is mm-hmm. bouncing ideas, trying different things, and seeing what works, and 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 even on another level, because it's kind of sanctimonious uh, kowtowing to a playwright's words, because it's been performed more often than not. The play has been performed, and it's etched now in the Samuel French edition, and you must say these words. Um, You change blocking, but don't, you know, if it's Shakespeare, I don't mess with it. You know, I, I came to discover that that there's something about if you have respect for, when you try to make what's written work, you try your best to make that work first. But if you have a great idea, you share it, and you see what you always defer to the director, who is the auteur, the guardian of the writing on a film set, as opposed to a committee of slackers who have cushy jobs in the TV industry, especially in the 80s. Not to cast dispersions, but the the way in which they would territorially protect their words uh, was absurd because so much of it was so bad and could afford to be improved with uh, at least some degree of openness to a a suggestion. But uh, I think there's a fear that actors will try and, you know, unlike my embracing the idea Mm -hmm. of being cut off at the head, will try and find ways to get their head in there.
2: (laughs) Right. (laughs) <laughs>
1: and we'll try and add lines so that they can have more screen time. But that was never my thing. I was I was happy to cut lines if they weren't needed if the behavior could could inform the audience without having to spell it out. But uh, it depends. It's a, that's why you have to sort of earn the right to get to a place where they've seen your work enough to go, yeah, he's going to make the, a good suggestion as opposed to somebody that's going to commandeer or co-opt or right. hijack a script and turn it into their mm. vehicle
0: right e- even when you like earned the right were there some directors or writers who had issues with your ideas
1: well i mean just the fact that alex gave me the opportunity to change and bring the things that i did and the things that i improvised were things that just happened to like when i would go down the street in new york guys would come up and go Oh, man it's Bowry snacks hey man I fucking do you yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, do me right and, was, and they would say lines of mine yeah. that I had made up right and and I went wow that really stuck in their head because it just came so naturally out of uh, the situation. Gary was a good improviser so we just interacted mm-hmm. and you know what by taking the script as a structure, and then tearing it apart and throwing it out and coming back and piecing it together. And, and what Alex did when he developed, you know, delivered the script the next morning, he had all the key points that needed to be held on to the pinnings yeah. structurally to work and all of our best extemporaneous ad-libs woven in. Yeah. And uh, so it just, uh, you know, that it, because I started out, when I was 15 in the experimental theater, I was sort of adopted by a troupe um, and improvisation was a big part of it. And it wasn't like just the improv, which I would do later and enjoy, but uh, and still found very informative and mm-hmm. instructive about film acting and being in the moment and listening and, and coming up with characters. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was something about the experimental theater that I did uh, with the troupe that I, I, was, I was first started in the theater with. Um, it wasn't based on just trying to come up with a quick gag or joke. It was about behavior
2: right.
1: and um, and groundedness and really knowing who the character was and having a sense of storytelling by really listening and giving and taking uh, to, to let something really truthful emerge. And that's what uh, happened with, with us there. And it captured and Figgis right after that yeah. put me in internal affairs where I improvised my whole role uh, you know and it just sort of fed into um, it, it didn't you know it was a number of years later but Todd Haynes said that it was seeing me in Sid Nancy that had made him want to work with me and that he was having me in, in safe play a part that was 180 degrees different from the character I'd played who was very street and idiosyncratic and hipster to a super straight Jewish guy that um just didn't have any real facility for Mm -hmm. communicating and and, uh and didn't really understand it was a little out of his depth but was a solid straight arrow and uh that was an interesting casting choice for him because he he, he'd seen me in enough other things to know that i had a range And that he was excited to see me do that, which he'd never seen me do. And then by doing that, uh, the guy that directed, wrote and directed Gattaca
2: hmm.
1: wanted to bring, I think, a little bit of the atmosphere of Save because he had this incredible lookbook that had yeah. so many super smart uh, influences visually that he was interested in incorporating into the film because um, we did a big table read of it before we, we ever moved into production and I was always in his head as, as the doctor um, mm-hmm. because he wanted I guess he wanted to in, in a sense in an homage to Todd Haynes incredible right. atmospheric filmmaking with Safe he wanted to bring a, a, which is a, kind of a brilliant idea to, you know, to the audience that might be crossing over that might just sort of ooh I feel that disturbing vibe from Safe suddenly just because I'm there mm-hmm. and I'm playing a pretty pretty straight kind of guy uh, playing the doctor in Gattaca. And so I think one thing definitely feeds off the next. And, and then you do, I think word gets around, you know, and, and uh, I worked with a few people and I worked with Joel Cernow on two different shows before I did 24 well, without realizing it because he wasn't on set, okay, but he'd written the script and I'd had changed stuff. Um, and with approval from the director right. and the on, on set pointed person in charge of the script that had liked my changes and he had instead of resisting it come to see oh he's pretty good at this and I got given a tremendous amount of freedom on 24 to uh, you know because we were having to come up with these scripts especially because 9-11 happened and they had to sort of throw a lot of stuff out it yeah. was too close um, they were changing scripts at the last minute and they, they had a sort of a, an outline, a guideline, but they needed actors like so I for myself and my wife, Sarah, was good at it as well and we'd work together on stuff to be able to come up with stuff um, to, you know, uh, massage and finesse the, the so maybe extrapolate some of this um, sort of bare-bones techno-terminology into human speak. Um, And I ended up, you know, even in Apollo 13, the the role that I played, you know, Ron uh, once apologized that he didn't get to use more of it because he loved it, but it was like I was his insurance policy, (laughs) and I was so happy that he didn't need to rely on me any more than he did um, to extrapolate the techno-terminology of NASA uh, program and what they were trying to do with that mission into um, Layman's terminology because they had me speaking to the press corps and uh, answering questions. And for all different sequences, he, he, used, he shot a lot of stuff. If at any moment the audience wasn't able to follow what was happening, they'd have uh, where the questions might rise, they'd have the press shouting out, Questions yeah. and I was able to extemporaneously answer them because we had spent two weeks in space school with these guys, and, right. and I had been able to ask questions and, and yeah. rock the kind of essential points, um, and, and I was able to be conversational in, in communicating them the way they had been with me
2: yeah.
1: uh, to the press corps um, in the in the filming process, and uh, so in a lot of cases, it, it just ended up. Coming up that I I was able to uh, help, yeah. and I and I didn't uh, I didn't ask for a credit and I didn't ask for a paycheck, so right. it was kind of a a, a package deal yeah. on the side of people. Right.
0: You mentioned twenty four, so let's let's go there. Uh, it's probably my favorite drama. Uh, Watch it what? from the beginning. Well, you know, I guess people always start watching shows late and binge it. I was I was there from from the very beginning, and I remember. Mm-hmm. I think it was a pilot episode where the plane exploded. So I think that was some sort of the issue there. We're trying to draw in towards 9-11, which you're talking about, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it it, uh, it happened as we were filming the second, or first or second episode, right, right. before we were going to air the pilot. Yeah. And there was a lot of crossover. They had to recut the pilot. Right. So the plane crashed. stuff was too disturbing.
0: Yeah. Now, the, you came on because is, is there a more like job that has less job security than the CTU director?
1: Um, probably not. Maybe um,
0: Trump's cabinet, but I mean other than that.
1: Right. You know, I at the time I was still avoiding TV, <clears throat> yeah. still a film snob, and um, and a world traveler. And it wasn't until I met my wife on that show, and right. it wasn't until that show started to change the zeitgeist of what television was and could be, right. and it was also the the onset of binge-watching was that show. Yeah. So <clears throat> it just, everything started to change at that point, point. and certainly in my personal life because I didn't want to be away anymore. I had a, a reason to, you know, start to want to build a home. Yeah. And uh, I'd had a house up in the hills for a long time. Sarah so moved in and we got married early. <clears throat> um, and uh, so, you know, there were, but, but uh, Joel knew that I wasn't it wasn't yet. I was only just beginning to warm up to the idea of, I would, I would always go away during pilot season just to avoid the temptation of right. the large sums of money being thrown around so that I wouldn't get tied into a series and have to be the same guy over and over and over right. until I felt like part of my thing was I know, you could never shake the association you had to be really careful what you chose to become known for because people could never get that guy out of their head when they saw you in anything after that right. and uh, you know by going as, depth, as deep into the psychology of the characters as 24 it was able to do by taking an entire season for one day so that you can explore the minutia within every minute and every hour right. of that day of human behavior. Right. It's really like a sudden you're on a, a whole different lens. You're in a microscope
2: right.
1: of, of human behavior instead of these broad strokes where you've got to introduce a bad guy and bring him to justice and put a bow on the end by the end of the 45-minute, hour-long episode. <clears throat> so... Um, Joel presented to me at the end of the first season where I'd been overcurrent. The character was really just in the pilot as a guest star. They just liked that I brought this kind of cynical, you know, gravitas toss Hmm. and irony to the character's sense of humor and and way of being, which wasn't on the page. And that was a little bit the improv that I worked into the pilot. And just a little bit of how I chose to play the character. And they, they liked it. They liked the way that that was going to play against Kiefer and, and different things. So they kept writing the in in the first season. And then um, at the end of the first season, they said, look, we know you, you don't like to commit to a series. But what if we had George inhale airborne plutonium in the first or second episode? Right. And we give him 24 hours to live. He'd be dead at the end of the season. Yeah. Do we have a deal?
2: Right. You know,
1: we have a deal. Yeah. <laughs> because in that was implied the, the redemption uh, storyline of somebody trying to make up for a life misspent. Right. To some extent, done, yeah. <laughs> and um, where I wouldn't just have to repeat the same old, you know, sort of gratuitous prick, uh, you know, antagonist right. role. And where I wouldn't have to just keep going, no. No. <laughs> Well, maybe, but this is the last time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, you know, it gave me a whole new sort of universe to open up by having to make contact with my son, by having to sense my mortality and and feel remorse for how I maybe misused my power and or lost opportunities. and and started to interact with people differently and then right. ended up saving the day. It was great.
0: And, you know, cause you're known for your deaths. You actually died three times in that one particular episode, which is pretty rare, you know, the plutonium you know, radiation, the plane crashing, and then eventually the yeah. atomic bomb going off. So three deaths <laughs> right there.
1: Yeah. And I, and I, and then there's the other sort of cultural sort of, uh, Echo chamber because I had died in in a, a plane in Air Force One right. and in Plentywood movie that he directed called The Rookie, yeah. one of his bigger films. But yeah. some people had seen it, yeah. and so like this guy just doesn't have good luck with airplanes, <laughs> and and you know, and I'd also i also fallen from thirty foot floor buildings on right. four occasions yeah. as well. So I I'd done a lot of aerial. Right. Uh, more demise by air yeah. uh, on film. So yeah, there were there were there were definitely the three. I was gonna I was a goner no matter what. Right, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because I was up high. Right.
0: I know, like you know, Sarah finished out the season. And she came back in the third season. Did did you continue to watch the show while she was on, or did
2: you even oh finish yeah, out the show? she was
1: on after they killed my wife after they killed, killing me that's one thing but you kill my wife yeah it's over exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah now like we, we are great big tv watches anyway and again always loved going to the movie theater but right. uh, that looks like maybe changing yeah that's
0: true and then you know, on youtube there's a great death reel you have it's like I think about 13 minutes of your you know most recognizable deaths i watched it a few times it's great one of them, no, really. yeah. One of them is great because I was a big fan of the miniseries V, which they made into a TV show, and you, you had a great memorable death of some kind of uh, sand monster. You got sucked into. Um, when yeah, you- that was one of
1: the more awful deaths that I've experienced on <laughs> right. film. You know, they always they always choreograph they always schedule your death scene on the last day right. of your shooting because more often than not, it's a very dangerous undertaking yeah. and they think well at least we'll have shot him out if we kill him yeah um or if we injure him badly right. it won't hold up production yeah. and you don't catch on to that the first you know 25 35 deaths you don't really get on to that until later you go no. of course it's on the last day <laughs> um <clears throat> it wasn't just how the schedule worked out right that was okay i got yeah. it it's dangerous um And, uh, so, you know, I, uh, in that particular instance, walking out into a sand pit to, to then be eaten by, that's like quicksand. Yeah. And so I'm lowering down while this looking across to see a a, a land shark coming through the sand at me. And and then I'm meant to, you know, just be sort of spaced out Mm -hmm. and, and, fatalistic about my suicide going out there yeah. until the thing starts chomping on me at which point I'm supposed to like start right. freaking out yeah, and screaming yeah. the pain and yeah. uh, all the while I'm in a giant baggie yeah. I have to walk out to a spot in the sand wandering like aimlessly but yet very directionally yeah. to a mark um, whereupon I will hit the hydraulic elevator that will lower down this chamber of of sand yeah. but it's all sand all around except for this little the part that's in the baggie mm-hmm. is formiculite okay. so it's not too heavy and it won't just all slide right. out it's light and it's like uh, it has a big rubber band elastic thing that if i stand on that exact spot mm-hmm. and that when i land okay. on it that the, it'll be dead center of this sort of elastic thing that will s- stretch around me and hold all the vermiculite in okay instead of having it just go into the underground chamber well they weren't testing it because it took too long to set that up and if they had tested it they weren't doing it in front of me that's for sure yeah (laughs) so i'm i'm in my character i'm like the crazy scientist who's suicidal and fatalistic and the danger of being an actor doing your job mm-hmm. is you go out there, you hit yeah. that mark, and you're doing it for the first time, and you go down in the elevator, and you're just spaced out, and you start screaming just as the famiculate goes into your eyes, right. into your nose, into your uh-huh. mouth, down your throat, in your ears, and you're in this underground chamber where there's six guys with gas masks, just in case there was some dust. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> They've got gas masks. Right now, you—you <laughs> got a mouthful of vermiculite. It's yeah. not really good to get in your lungs. Yeah, there wasn't so many times that they—they uh, yeah. they do shit that's so freaking dangerous. Right. I've been almost killed so many times. It's ridiculous. That—that's real. When I look at it, sometimes oh fuck man. Yeah. When <laughs> I get lucky on that one.
0: Right. Yeah. Do you, Do you go into roles now with like suggestions on your death?
1: Do I go into discussions with how it's going to be i pro- – I'm yeah. sorry I missed that word.
0: Yeah, like do you actually – when you're auditioning for a role or you're negotiating it, do you give suggestions on how you're going to die? If that's it well, screen? I
1: insist that I die because I want to have everything I do now end up on my dad's reel. I'm, I'm really looking for the Guinness Book of World yeah. Records. I think I have but definitely beaten Sean, Sean Bean. Uh, Bean. Yeah. But I, I, I do – I think uh, Danny Trejo might have me by a few. I'm not sure. Yeah, Yeah. <laughs> I'll have to check, Yeah. but I'm up there. Um, no, a kid. Uh, yeah, we talk about how it's going to be done. Yeah. <laughs> um, sometimes, depends on the scale of the production. If it's a small production, I have a lot to say. Right. It's a big one, less. Um, but, you know... Even on things like The Walking Dead, when I got to be hung, right. you know, they wanted me to be blindfolded. You know, they wanted me to be have my hands tied behind my back on a live horse. You
2: know,
1: yeah, no, no, it's not going to happen. <laughs> with the noose around my head, yeah, no, no chance. Come up with something else. Yeah, um, that's not going to work. Right. And and the the stunt man that did it, it was a you know trained horseman, and it was his horse, and all the rest of it still went. You didn't want to be doing this. Right. I, I didn't want to be yeah. doing this, and I—I I, I thought I had it, but it was freaking scary. Right. And I know, yeah, I know, I—I could see that there was an element of uh, yeah. a margin for error, right? <laughs> and uh, you know, people had died on that show and and before, and, and someone had, and not long after, I, I was doing a, a fall off of the staircase where. Yeah going backwards down the okay, so you showcase, know, trying to be talked into not looking, just going straight back so mm. it'll fit like the comic book uh, yeah. drawing that was ref- being referenced. Right. Yeah, I'm not a comic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but yeah. got kids. Right. I used to be more careless when I didn't mm. I have children, but I uh, don't want to leave them fatherless just yet. Right. So I'm not going to do, I'm going to look because yeah. that's what somebody would do in real life. They'd go, hey, you're backing me up, man, there's a staircase I could fall off here. Yeah. And uh, even still, I came this close wow. to going through this gap. And, and, you know, that's just typical of so many things. Yeah. In the yeah. third of the Alex Cox movies that I did, I ended up having to get my head smashed uh, by a rock. It was a foam rock in Nicaragua. But while I was carrying a horse, on a rope with a trunk on his back of right. all of my belongings and I'm trying to escape yeah. Granada as they're burning the city to the ground so there's oh. a massive fire all the, the wood structures that we built yeah. for the set were being burned down on that night, the night that my character dies
2: yeah.
1: and uh, and so it just so happened that the, the guy they had cast in the role to play the, the guy that this is, I was playing an historic character from Nicaraguan history and American history and mean Byron Cole who they have a big mural in one of the buildings of this guy getting his head smashed by one of the you know
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, regular right. everyday the who, <laughs> who helped the, to end Yankee imperialism back in the 1850s and that was the film was referencing this because it was very much like what was going on at the time mm-hmm. uh, with the Contra War and it was just dangerous time to be down there. You see 12 girls with AK 47s wow. in their lap sitting on set yeah. and kind of like, I hope this all works yeah, out. right? And the next thing you know, the, there's a, a town on fire and your horse is a Nicaraguan nag, not a well-trained, and, you know? Right. And so he was bucking and rearing and I'm pulling him along. And, uh, you know, was, I think we'd already done a couple where the guy that, that came in to, to play that part, uh, had to be replaced at the last minute. He was wearing this baggy suit that didn't really fit him, and he was all nervous, and the Minister of the Interior, and Daniel Tick sitting there watching the scene because he wanted to be historically accurate.
2: Yeah.
1: And uh, and he's so nervous in their company and being on a film set and being in a costume that's too big, and he keeps scaring the horse. Yeah. And the Minister of the Interior, Thomas Borja, who had been in prison for 25 years during the revolution, he's out running the country, right. They're hypnotizing the horse, putting his head up against the and I'm like, I'm changing my, my shirt with the blood for the third time. It's <laughs> the last shirt they've got, so they got to get it. Right. And because had a tube that would come out the back of my head through my shirt and pump the blood after right. I, I had my head smashed in there uh-huh. on, the, on the ground. Right. <clears> this <throat> so pans in. Well, it, it had to pan past the horse and all of that and the fire in the background, and the horse is freaking out at this point. Because the guy's been nervous and he's mm-hmm. swinging at me right next to him, and and uh, so the horse rears up in this final take. But I just you know, I knew this is the last shirt. And again, you're a consummate professional. We've got to get this. So I'm not going to move. And I'm watching with my eyes open as the life is going out of me as the horse rears up and brings its hooves like right by my head, like boom, and like could have smashed like a coconut a couple of inches to the right.
2: Right.
1: And, and then I'm also watching as the, the trunk in the back of the horse slips through the ropes and comes sliding down. And again, I don't move and it happens to just bounce the corner of it bounces right in between my legs and bounces off and doesn't crush my leg. And, and I just, and it's just like, Mm -hmm. you know, so many times I just go, Oh my God, how did I not get Killed. killed? Yeah. just, Wow, that's,
0: that's wild, yeah. Now, yeah. yeah, you mentioned getting tossed down the stairs in The Walking Dead, and it was by Simon, who was played by Stephen Ogg. Yeah, 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 yeah. how do you think his hair looks right now during this quarantine?
1: I, I miss, I, you know, I, I I loved Stephen's hair when it would just start back here and just go straight up. Yeah. And he was just, we hung out a lot, we were really good friends, and he was just... <laughs> So uh, I, I I like that look on him, but you know he's a, you know I, I also like that he isn't relying on any one set look to right. identify himself as an actor. I think it's critical for an actor to change. I always grow beards in between roles because yeah. if they want to period sideburns or
2: yeah.
1: Fu Manchu or right. weird devil beard or whenever I got it. <laughs> I just and I, and I look like a really versatile actor just by having offered that over the years. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so I think it's good, but yeah, we were so disappointed when we read that script where he pushed me off, uh, yeah. you know, cause we, we were, we had so much fun in season seven because of the interaction right. sort of, it felt like we had, we, we were cooking a souffle uh, yeah. because it was a delicate balance of, of camaraderie and, and, uh, that they're both two guys that are in a world where they miss normal interactions. And I think we're getting a good glimpse of that now in in our situation. But, uh, in in their post-apocalyptic, um, dystopian world, uh, they didn't have intellectual peers as it were. And Simon for his brutality was a very sharp and clever wordsmith. And, uh, you know, the writers were were that and they were using yeah. these characters to get that across. That his thugs weren't going to give him that banter that I was. Right. And so they enjoyed each other's company, even if they were at odds. And he was always taking stuff away from me.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
1: he kind of enjoyed cat and mouse playing with me because yeah. I, I entertained him. Right. And because I was always trying to please him, but also I was trying to be yeah. a little funny. And, and they, I thought that they did such a great job of, of incorporating that into the dialogue, that, that dynamic, which is just a really subtle but really freaking cool thing. because mm-hmm. it, it just allowed us to be so in the moment uh, with each other and so interactive. But the minute in that, like one of the very first episodes of, of season eight, to have him do that sort of uh, broke the... The bond between those two characters, because I, you know, it was over. Right. And so, and then I spent that whole season. Seems to me in a in a pen. Yeah. In yeah. A, they had too many characters that they were trying to juggle, and so they wasted. Uh, that's that's a case where I just felt like I'm. If I'm not going to be used, I don't want to be on this show, where I'm just away from my family. Right. And and C is notoriously cheap for people coming in. Uh, I'll say it right here.
2: Yeah. <laughs> they
1: paid me the same as an 18 year old wow. starting out in the business for the first time. And yeah. and agents, you know, there's a lot, a lot is going down, a lot is changing now, but agents that were not looking out for their clients right. to get them the best fee because they were in some way participating in some other level. I don't know if that was the case or not, but it looked like it was. That's why they were. Negotiating a wage that I could more than break even doing a show—you know that's one of the most successful shows in the world. That's another reason why I'm I'm ready for a change in the business. Yeah, you know, in any other business, you get a little respect, a little seniority. Uh-huh. You're, you're valued because you've developed a craft, and it's hard to play a character that people hate and still enjoy watching. Yeah, I mean, that's not something that a kid starting out knows how to do.
0: No, it's true. I mean, and, you've done that your whole career, and you've done it
1: well in a, yeah. you know,
0: every role. It's people don't realize it's acting. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know, it's it's a it's a skill that, that like anybody else, yeah. uh, you know, it's really good at what they do. They they should get a little something over the years that, yeah. that reflect that. Right. You've got a family to support, yeah. you know, and you end up putting yourself up and traveling and flying yourself back and forth and renting your cars and, and paying an agent, a manager and a lawyer, their percent, and the government takes their percent, if they're not paying you a decent wage. You don't end up with everything at the end of the day. Of yeah. So it's like, yeah, I'm done. I'm done with that. Yeah. Um, people are going to value me and, and uh, respect me in that respect. I'll, I'll go to work for them. Otherwise I'm going to start creating opportunities for myself and for my friends to, to treat people well and, well,
0: oh, so, good. Yeah, well, good for you. I got one, one quick, one more. Um, you obviously worked with Gary Oldman. With to Nancy, was it good to see him years later on Air Force One?
1: Oh God, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, I'd seen him in between. We stayed friends, right. and I adored yeah. Gary. Just one of the most just such a lovely, sweet. Uh, you know, for the for the rough characters he's played, he's yeah. just such a gentle. Lovely guy, um, just adore him, and I've seen him since, and, and uh, hope to work with him again. I was so happy that he finally got the Academy Award he's been yeah. deserving for many, many years. You know, these little things matter. I think Roger and Gary were so inspiring from early on, and, right. and um, I've watched, them. I've been inspired by them so many times since. And you know, <clears throat> I will say about The Walking Dead that that uh, in addition to my absolute joy in working with Stephen Ogden. I just was so impressed by Andrew Lincoln and mm. his quality as a person right. and uh, uh, and his you know sometimes people just get it right the, uh, the way to set a good example leading from the top with a, a level of commitment and a level yeah. of kindness and a level of, of uh, mutual respect so that you all feel like you're pulling on the same end of the rope instead of some stars that miss that, that you know, almost like the, the disproportionate wages that stars get paid relative to the rest of the cast creates a kind of divide-and-conquer psychology where they are above and better than, and you get this diva behavior, and it's it's hard when you're, you know, when you're down there trying in the trenches trying to make people look good to not right. be treated well. Um, and Andrew's just so incredibly... Uh, Generous and kind and noble, a human being.
0: Yeah. Well, you've also been in the trenches, making everyone you work with look good as well. So, Xander, I appreciate your time today. This was fantastic. yay thank you, man. I
1: really enjoyed the
0: talk. And a special thanks to Xander for joining me today. You can follow him on Twitter at Berkeley His website is therealxanderberkeley.com dot that's where you can find his artwork. And you can watch this episode on YouTube. Uh, it was a video interview I did with Xander. So just search Reliving My Youth, Xander Berkeley. And you can catch up on all the past episodes we've done for the past three years on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Podbean. And you can review the show for me. I really appreciate it. Go to Reliving My for all your merchandise. We're all home now. You can wear t shirts to work. Might as well wear a Living My Youth podcast t shirt. want to thank everyone again for the last three years it's been so much fun i look forward to the next three years and we'll see you next week everyone